2 Samuel 23, reading verses 1 through 7. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the, sh- like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. We're we're here on week three of this four-week sermon series through Advent, where we're looking at these four names that Isaiah gives to the king who's going to come, to the child who's going to be born, the 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 baby Jesus that we celebrate every Advent season. And three of the four titles are pretty intuitive. It's it's easier to understand what Isaiah means when he says, Jesus will be our wonderful counselor, that he'll be our almighty God, and that he'll be our Prince of Peace. Those are titles that make sense when we think about Jesus. But this one, Everlasting Father, is strange. Because Jesus is God the Son, he's not God the Father. So what is, at first glance, you think, what is Isaiah talking about? Does he have his trinity confused? How could, how could the Son be the Father? And we can assume that, that's, that Isaiah is not confused, that he does know what he's saying. And when Isaiah says, that Jesus, this son that's going to be born, will be our everlasting father. He is not saying that the son will be the father. He, he understands his different, the different roles within the Trinity. And so Jesus as our everlasting father is in no way an attempt to replace Jesus, to replace God the father and put God the son in that place. What Isaiah is talking about here is Jesus's kingship. So this title of father would be given to this to a king as supreme. And we, we see that in Isaiah 9. Uh, Ruth just prayed that to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. Government or authority. The, the authority will be given to this child. He, he will reign as the king, and then at a verse or so later, it says, of the increase of his government, of the increase of his authority, there will be no end. And look in Isaiah chapter 22, when Isaiah is prophesying about another king who's going to take authority. Isaiah 22, verse 20, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority, the authority of a king, to his hand. 
and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So you can say of a king that a king rules over a people as a father has authority over children. And so when Isaiah says that this son will be an everlasting father, he's saying that this son will rule over his people like a father rules over his children. And he'll do this forever as an everlasting father. And so this sermon is a sermon about authority. And what we see in Isaiah is this future king who's going to come and he's going to finally exercise authority the way that it is designed to be exercised. And and those who live under his authority will flourish. And so the reason that I picked 2 Samuel 23 as the the main text this morning, really Isaiah 9 is the main text, but 2 Samuel 23 is this main supporting text, which is not well worded by me. But 2 Samuel 23, David, at the end of his life, at the end of his reign as king, he gives us a really great definition of what good authority should look like. Verse 3, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So David says, when one rules justly, when, when a king does his job well, when a person in authority leads well, his leadership to those under that leadership feels like a beautiful sunrise, feels like a gentle shower of rain that brings life. That's how it's supposed to work. And so the first thing we see, first thing we need to understand is that authority is God's idea. Authority comes from God. God himself has authority as our creator. That's what it means to be God. He's in charge. He's the strongest, the most powerful, the most glorious. Isaiah says in Isaiah 45 verse 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. God is the potter, we are the clay, and so God gets to make us. God gets to decide what kind of pot we are. And for us to say, well, why did you make me this way, is absurd. He has authority as our creator. Psalm 95, 6 and 7, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He's God. We aren't. Our job is to kneel before him as our God, as our maker, as the one who has supreme authority in our lives. And this is how it's going to work for eternity. God is going to reign in authority over his people forever. Revelation 22, verse 3. John has this vision of heaven, and he says, In heaven, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. In heaven, God will be the master, we will be the servants. 
He will be on the throne. We will be the worshipers. Authority is present in many areas of God's creation. It's it's all over the place. And there's a lot of nuance in terms of where authority shows up, how it is meant to be expressed. And we're, we're not going to go into all the nooks and crannies of authority this morning. But I want to point out three areas where authority is prominent and especially relevant for us. And so these three areas that I point out, think of them as examples with principles that you could apply to other areas of authority. And the three areas of authority that I want to hit on are the home, the church, and the community. So God has designed that there would be healthy authority. It's God's plan that there would be healthy authority in the home, in the church, and in the community. So in in the home. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that the husband is the head of the wife and that parents are given authority over their children. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And then Paul continues. So in in 22 through 24, you see the statement of authority. Husbands are the head of, the husband is the head of the wife. So here's authority stated. And then in verses 25 through 29, you see the responsibility of the husband to exercise healthy authority. So, husband, you are in a position of authority. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. You are in authority. Exercise that authority well. And again, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we see this dynamic with parents over children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there in verses 1 through 3, authority is stated. Parents have authority over children. Children are called to honor their parents. And then in verse 4, there's the call for parents to exercise that authority well. Dads, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Just real quick, men, dads, we need to ponder. What does it mean? What does it mean that Paul would take time here to address dads specifically and he would warn us not to provoke our children to anger? What does that, what does that mean for us? It's sobering to consider the responsibility that we have here and how quick we are to fall into error here. 
So authority in the home, authority in the church. Elders are called to have spiritual authority over members of the congregation. Hebrews 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. So there, there it is. There's that statement of authority. Obey your leaders, your, the elders of the church, obey your leaders and submit to them. For there is no authority except from God. Or, I just skipped there, sorry. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So submit to your leaders, statement of authority, and they will have to give an account for their authority. So there's the responsibility for elders to lead well, to use their authority as a blessing. And as members of the congregation, we have authority over one another, but we're not going to get into that this morning. So in the home, in the church, and then in the community. And you see this most clearly in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, but especially verse 1, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So there you go. There's that statement of authority. The governing authorities are placed there for us to, to subject ourselves to. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So we are called to submit to that civic authority, but they need to recognize that they're given that authority by God and they better exercise that authority well. And this, of course, plays out on a local level, on a state level, on a national level. So my point here is this. Authority is a feature of God's design for his creation. It's not a bug. Authority is not something that has crept in after sin. Authority is written in to the way that the world is designed to work. Authority is not something that the Lord means to cast off and do away with in the new heavens, but rather something he means to redeem and restore. And so we have that picture of authority in, in 2 Samuel 23. This is what good authority ought to look like. It's, it ought to be one who rules justly, ruling, over, ruling in the fear of God. And if someone rules that way, those who live under that leadership will experience it like a sunrise, like a gentle rain shower. God's design is for authority to be exercised in the home, in the church, and in the community in such a way that those under the authority flourish. When those in authority carry out their responsibility well, it's like this beautiful sunrise, this gentle rain shower. And I wouldn't be here preaching this sermon if that's how it went. So often it does not go that way. That is not our experience with authority. Like every other area of our lives, sin has warped and damaged authority. So we need to recognize Authority is God's idea, but authority is regularly misused, abused, abandoned, rejected. Authority gone wrong is at the very heart of what happened in Genesis 3. That's, that's where it all started. In, in Genesis 1 through 3, you have this picture. God has designed a world where he is the supreme authority, he is good and trustworthy, worth submitting to. 
And he's created Adam and calls Adam to work and to keep the garden. And then out of Adam's rib, God creates Eve and gives Eve to Adam as his wife and as his helper. And he places both of them together in the garden where they are to exercise dominion or authority over God's creation. And in Genesis 3, it goes exactly wrong. You have the serpent, who is one of God's creatures, and he exerts influence that doesn't belong to him, and he uses that influence to deceive. And he's deceiving Eve, encouraging her to exercise authority that isn't hers. Eve, why don't you decide what's right and wrong? Why don't you decide not to listen to God? Eve, why don't you lead your husband with you into this deception? And Adam abandons his authority, abandons his responsibility. He stands idly by as the deadly, deadly serpent deceives his wife. And then he silently follows into rebellion by eating the fruit. And then, of course, Adam blames Eve for what's gone wrong. And Eve blames the serpent for what's gone wrong. And so ever since Genesis 3, humanity's relationship with authority has gone regularly and devastatingly wrong. In the home, where a husband is called to love his wife as his own body, to nourish and cherish her, so often he uses his headship to dominate his wife and to take from her. Where a wife is called to respect her husband, so often she mistrusts him or seeks to manipulate him. Where parents are called to raise their children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord, so often we abuse or neglect. And children who are called to honor their parents so often rebel against them. In the church, authority has gone wrong. Pastors and elders who are called to shepherd the flock of God instead, of, instead behave like wolves who devour the flock. Or congregations don't respond well to their pastors and elders who lead faithfully. So again, I actually read this morning in my uh, morning devotions, I read Hebrews 13, that verse that I just read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you've existed in churches for any period of time, you've seen this. How many sheep have bloodied their shepherds and filled them and their families with groaning instead of joy? It happens in the community. History is largely the story of civic and political leaders using their authority to enrich themselves, to destroy their enemies, and to crush the weak. War and genocide and tyranny are the result of authority gone wrong. And just as often, you have citizens rebelling against good authority. So, so we can look through this lens of history and of our personal experience, and we can read 2 Samuel 23 and say, that is what good leadership looks like 
That's what good leadership produces, but we don't see it very often. We have so few examples of leaders, of rulers who rule justly in the fear of the Lord and of people who submit to that good rulership, that good authority, and are blessed by it. That is just not our experience. Instead of leadership that feels to those under it like a beautiful sunrise or a gentle rain shower that brings life and peace and joy, authority is so often a scorching sun that causes those under that authority to wither and languish. So, do you feel sufficiently depressed yet? What is our hope in the midst of all this failure at every level, in the home, in the church, in the community? Many people would listen to what I've said so far and say, this is why we need less authority. This is why we need less structure. Let's get rid of authority. Let's encourage freedom and autonomy. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And Isaiah has better good news for us. Isaiah tells us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government or leadership or authority will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Everlasting Father. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And so our calling as Christians is not to get out from under authority. Our calling as Christians is not to abolish authority. What we are called to as God's people is to affirm God's authority and to exercise and submit to good authority and to repent of and call out bad authority. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus redeems authority and he redeems those who come under his authority. First, we have to recognize Jesus doesn't speak truth to power. It's a popular phrase nowadays, hey, that person speaks truth to power. That person really calls out the leaders. And we see Jesus talking to the Pharisees or the the priests, and we think, yeah, look at Jesus telling those rulers what's up. Jesus doesn't speak truth to power. He doesn't come to overthrow the whole concept of authority. Jesus comes with authority as king, who is God himself. And where all other authority figures have ultimately failed and fallen short, Jesus finally, perfectly, fulfills his roles and responsibilities. So we read 2 Samuel 23, here's good rulership, and we think, yeah, but it's never going to happen. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he does it. He rules justly in the fear of the Lord so that those under him can flourish. Jesus is the husband, and the, and the church is the bride And going back to Ephesians 5, Jesus, Paul tells us that Jesus loves the church and gives himself up for her. 
So when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that's a call for the husband, the head, to die, to lay down his life, to humble himself so that his wife can flourish. Jesus does that. And Jesus is our faithful new covenant head. Unlike Adam or Abraham or Noah or David, who all fail to uphold the covenants that God makes for them. And so as our new covenant head, Jesus is like a perfect father who lovingly teaches us the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Jesus is the faithful and true pastor, the good shepherd of the flock. And he tells us in John 10, I am, I am the good shepherd, and my chief characteristic as shepherd is what? I lay down my life for the sheep. So what kind of pastor is Jesus? Jesus is the type of pastor who loves his church so much that he dies for us. He is the, he's the perfect pastor, the, the faithful, good shepherd. And then Jesus is the ideal king, the perfect civic leader. Maxwell read in Philippians 2 that although Jesus, the Son of God, had the form of God, Jesus had all the power, all the authority that was due to him as a king, he didn't count that authority something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. This is what we've been meditating on week after week in Mark's gospel. Jesus is the king, but he comes as a servant. Jesus is the king, but he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for his subjects, crown of thorns instead of a crown of gold. So Jesus comes to redeem authority and to redeem those under his authority. And now I want to briefly close by considering how does Jesus' position as everlasting father, how can that be redemptive for us as we consider the pain of corrupted authority in our lives. So we have this damaged relationship with authority. We have been damaged by authority. Why is it good news that Jesus is the everlasting father? Why is it good news that of the increase of his government, there will be no end? Jesus redeems our failure to lead well. Dads, husbands, Moms, maybe you're a boss, pastors, elders. You have not fulfilled your office faultlessly. You have not been the perfect dad, the perfect husband, the perfect mother, the perfect pastor. Jesus has, and it's enough. God will not let you into heaven because you're a good enough dad because you're a good enough mom. God will let you into heaven 
because you've turned to Christ who has faithfully fulfilled his office, who has done what you didn't do. And so Jesus, not only does he do it for you, he forgives you for all of your failures as a leader, for all the ways you haven't been the good dad, the good mom, the good husband, the good boss, the good pastor. It's enough. He can redeem the ways that you have abused and misused and neglected your authority. Jesus also redeems our failure to submit to good leadership. The ways that you have dishonored your parents, failed to respect those who have been called to lead you politically, even behaved badly in a church setting, and most importantly, the way that you failed to submit to God's authority. Jesus is your good shepherd, and he has laid down his life for you. Jesus also redeems the hurt that we experience under sinful leadership. So you have a husband or an ex-husband. You have a father, a boss, a pastor from your past, and they hurt you. They have not done what they should have done. They have not used their authority to bless you. Their authority has been a curse in your life. And Jesus redeems that hurt. Jesus is the faithful, gentle husband who loves you so much that he laid down his life for you. Jesus is the kind, generous father who, who cares for you, who creates a home for you, a safe place that you can come and rest who has a seat at the table for you. Jesus is the good shepherd of the flock. Perhaps you've been bitten by wolves in the past. Jesus is the good shepherd. And Jesus is the righteous king. And then finally, Jesus redeems our hurt when our good leadership is rejected. Jesus knows what it is to be rejected as a husband, as a shepherd, as a parent, and as a king. I, I hadn't really made this connection before, but John chapter 1, part of John's prologue that I usually just kind of skip over, verses 10 through 12, it says, Jesus is the light of the world, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, verse 9. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was rejected repeatedly by people that he had loved perfectly. He knows what that's like. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus knows the pain that a parent feels over a rebellious child. The pain that a spouse feels over a, a spouse who rejects them. And the pain that a pastor feels over a rebellious flock. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if you've been hurt by authority, Jesus is a safe person for you to go to. Jesus is a safe person for you to come under his care. And if you've been hurt as you've tried to exercise authority, Jesus is a safe person for you. Jesus knows. He gets it. He understands what it feels like. He will see to it. He will take care of it. So we can, we can go to 2 Samuel 23 and say, yes, that is true in Jesus. Jesus is the one who rules justly. Jesus is the one who dawns on us like a sunrise. Jesus is the one who falls on us like a gentle shower of life-giving rain. And so, to conclude, why is Christmas worth celebrating? Christmas is the birthday of Jesus. In, in our home, uh, Tommy just had his birthday, and our five-year-old Christina said, hey, you know whose birthday is next? God's, right? So Jesus' birthday is next. It, it's next week. And you can put on the calendar, hey, this is the birthday of this president. This is the birthday of this political leader. This is the birthday of this king. And honestly, I don't feel like celebrating most of those people. I don't want to commemorate their birth because they failed. But we can commemorate the birth of our king. We can celebrate the coming of Jesus. I'm glad that a child has been born. I'm glad that a son has been given. I'm glad that the government is on his shoulder. I'm glad that his government, his authority will only ever increase and never end. I am glad that he's in this position as my father and that it will never go away, that he is my everlasting father and king. Christmas is good news. Let's pray. Father, of the increase of Jesus' government and of peace, there will be no end. It is good news that Jesus is in charge. So would you help us to submit to Jesus' leadership? And would you help us to bring all of the hurts of bad leadership to Jesus for him to redeem? In him we pray.